in Luke chapter 1 tonight because we are preparing with Zacharias and Elizabeth. We're preparing with Zacharias and Elizabeth for we have been asked by Christ, do you believe I can do this? Do you believe I can do this? God wants to work incredibly and why not in 2021? Why not? We've been through a year of trials, tribulations, preparation. For what? Are we willing to open our lives to say, yes, Lord, whatever you have coming down the line, we're ready for. We're going to bring it on. And so Christ has asked me in prayer in the weeks right before Advent. He was asking me, Brandon, do you believe I can do this? Well, yes, Lord, of course. And then he pops into my mind, Abraham and Sarah. Well, that was a big life change when they said yes. Elizabeth and Zechariah, another big life change when they said yes. And Mary, another very big change when she said yes. And so Christ said, careful, Brandon. I know you believe, but are you ready to receive what I'm going to do? Hmm. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So we believe, we believe, we believe that he can do this by preparing our hearts to receive. That's how you believe. You can believe in your head all you want, but as long as you try to keep your life in your control and all your expectations lined up and everything moving, streamlined, and God, do your thing within this parameter. You have, by definition, limited, defined, the unlimited, the indefinite. Is that the right word? Non-defined, infinite, so what I'm looking for. God, we've put him in a, yes, you can work right here. Oh, but Paul taught us in Ephesians 3 to pray, now to him who is able to do abundantly, above, exceedingly abundantly, above all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work in us, to him be glory through Jesus Christ and the church forever and ever to all generations. That doesn't sound like Paul's teaching us to pray, all right, I've got the thing that my head can comprehend, and I want God to come and just kind of enter it. No, I'm sorry, friends. We believe that God can do this by preparing our hearts to receive. So there's this, there's this mutual indwelling between us and God. God says, I want to do this. So we believe in him, which puts our life in him, but then we receive him into our lives through receiving. Believing is me putting myself in him, and receiving is him coming into me. So that there's this mutual indwelling. Believing, receiving, believing, receiving. God doing the work, me opening myself up, me putting myself in his life, him bringing himself into my life. It's a beautiful fellowship. It's a beautiful communion. So, okay, so we need to prepare our hearts to receive. That's the journey we've been on. We prepared Advent week one with David in Psalm 25, who said, All who wait on the Lord shall not be disappointed. Shall not be disappointed. So we prepare by waiting well. That was in Psalm 25, week two. That was last week. We looked at Abraham and Sarah. We prepare by communing with God. We prepare by communing with God. Communion with him, fellowship with him, friendship with him. This is creating and preparing space in our lives as a container for receiving abundantly above all we can ask or think through Christ's work. And now tonight, we're going to prepare with Elizabeth and Zechariah. And they show us that we prepare by keeping faithful devotion. We prepare by keeping faithful devotion devotion Luke chapter 1 verse 5 In the days of Herod king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth and they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both 
were advanced in years. When we open up Luke chapter 1, we know, oh, we're in the New Testament. This is the story of good news. We open it knowing where the story is going. We open it aware that God has created something special now. He's moving in history. He's, he's moving the long story of the world to its climax. We know that when we open Luke because we know that Jesus is coming. We know that he's going to do everything the prophet said he would do. We know that he's going to open a way through death to life for us through the cross and resurrection. We know that he's going to sit on the throne with his father, reigning over all, being Lord over all through his ascension. We know this good news. But Elizabeth and Zechariah do not have the benefit of opening Luke chapter 1 and saying, ah, good news begins right now. And hence Luke, very creatively, opens his gospel, not with angels singing and bells ringing. He opens the gospel just like an Old Testament story. You get no hint. If you just read, if you are new to the Bible and I just read this out loud, I don't tell you what book it's from, you're thinking, oh, it sounds kind of like all of the ladies in the Old Testament that were barren. God seems somehow to bring his seed, the Christ, through woman after woman after woman. What, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, Hannah? Well, Hannah wasn't the line of Christ, but she's in the story too. Um, all, the, the, all of them are barren. There's this constant theme that God visits the one who is fruitless, the one who is barren, the one who cannot fulfill in themselves what they are meant to fulfill. We open up like it's the Old Testament. Elizabeth is barren. Things haven't changed. Um, by the way, when you open up Luke chapter 1, the last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi. The time between Malachi and Luke chapter 1 is 400 years. Malachi closes his, uh, his prophecy by saying this. He tells us that, that, that the prophet is coming. Behold, I will send my messenger. This is Malachi 3. I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The last prophet saying, it's coming. There'll be a messenger, and then the Lord will be in our temple. And then the very end of Malachi Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. These are the last two verses of the Old Testament of the last prophet. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Elijah's going to come, then God's going to come. And he will turn the hearts of, their fa of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Woo. A little like warning there. Don't worry, don't worry. I'll bring a messenger. You guys will be prepared, and then God will show up. Well, those words have been echoing for 400 years. That's a long echo getting quieter and quieter and quieter with every passing decade, and the decades become centuries. And soon, this delay of promise, this this long waiting becomes this long delay, and long delay wears belief down. Long delay wears belief down. Have you been there? Long delay makes you, maybe I'm doing something wrong, or maybe God forgot, or maybe, maybe that pathetic little thing that actually gave me a little bit of joy this year was God's big promise. Long delay can wear belief down. That's where we are when we open Luke. Not only has it been 400 years of waiting and waiting, where's this messenger? Where's God? Where is he in all of this? We're still ruled by pagans. In Malachi, it was the Persians. The Persians kicked out the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple by Malachi's day. There's a new uh, 
shabbier version of the temple that was built up. And now the Persians were ruling instead of the Babylonians. And then in these 400 years of silence, the Persians are conquered by the Greeks. That doesn't bring them any deliverance. The Greeks are now ruling over them. And the period of the Greeks was brutal persecution and bloodshed. And for a little moment, some Jews called the Maccabees, Judas Maccabee rises up and gives them a little bit of breathing room where the Jews are actually ruling Jerusalem for just a little time. But then the Maccabean dynasty is in fighting with themselves. It's about 150 years before Jesus. They're not getting along. And then one of the rival two brothers fighting for the throne in Jerusalem so one of them says, hey, Rome, come help us. Rome's like, oh, we will. So then, as we open the New Testament, the Romans have been in power for some 80 years. More pag- pagans after pagan after pagan empire ruling the Jewish people. It's been a long 400 years. It's been a long delay. But then, but then finally, finally, Herod the Great comes into play. He's half Jewish. He's half Jewish, half uh, Edomite, which is Esau's. Jacob is Jewish, and Esau was the Edomites, the brothers. He's half both of those. So the, a lot of the Jews are like, oh, maybe this is the king we've been waiting for. Maybe this is our deliverance. And Herod was given the title by the emperor in Rome, king of the Jews. Man, what a disappointment Herod was. Herod murdered nearly a dozen wives, killed some of his kids. He was so ruthless. I mean, you see what he does at Christmas. News that a king might have been born? Well, let's just kill all the babies. That'll deal with it. He was paranoid because that's what power does. That's what ruthless power does it makes us have to use it some way to prove we still have it herod was so paranoid so ruthless that even caesar said it's safer to be herod's pig than it is to be his son and well caesar liked pig so that was saying something and so when we read verse five in the days of herod you can hear the groan you can hear the prayers. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. This is where we are. Long delay. It's wearing belief down. So that's nationally. Look at Elizabeth and Elijah. <laughs> Elizabeth and Zechariah, look at them personally. They were both righteous, but, verse 7 says, that they had no child. And now they were both advanced in years. So the nation, for 400 years, long delay, wearing down belief, and now in their own lives, what, 40 years maybe? Who knows? We're not given their age, but for a long time now, they are being worn down by unbelief. This long delay is wearing down their confidence, their belief in God. And so what we're going to see is the story of, all right, it's finally time, people. It's finally time. So there's uh, this once-in-a-lifetime moment. Zechariah's going to have this once-in-a-lifetime moment. Let's look at it. So verse seven, verse 8 now. So now we're going to get in the text. We're going to see the story unfold. We know the, the, the setting. Long delay is wearing down belief. In verse 8, now... While Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, pause, you might have noticed that up in verse 5 it said that he was of the division Abijah. The priests were divided by David, King David. You see this in Second Chronicles chapter 24. The priests were divided into 24 divisions. So that means that one division of priests would serve for two weeks every year. That would go through the 24 division cycle. So, two weeks every year, Elijah, uh, excuse me, Zechariah, it's that whole, the Jewish ending, ah, ah, uh, Elijah, nope, okay, we'll start. I know what we need, it's the awkward break, let's cleanse it. No, every two weeks, Z, Z would come to Jerusalem, Zechariah would come and do his two-week duty, 
And then that was it for the year. And he'd go back to the hill country where he lived, and he would be a priest there to the people, teaching the people, praying for the people. So he's in his annual duty in Jerusalem. Now, so you see that in verse 8. Now, verse 9. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Oh, this is exciting. Chosen by lot. Okay. We don't know exactly how many priests are in every single one of these divisions, but we do know this, that the rule was when you came to serve on duty for your two weeks, a lot would be thrown, like dice. You would be randomly selected to burn the incense, which was in the actual temple building right before the veil behind which was the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. So the lucky priest drawn by lot would come into the temple. Only time he's allowed in. And right before the veil, as close as he can get without dying, he would then put the incense on this little altar that had hot coals, and the incense would rise to God as the prayers of the people. And he would say a bunch of prayers that were preordained for him to say. He would recite the prayers before God, and the people outside, the priests and worshipers, would be standing around... um, praying along while they waited for Zechar, or for the priest that's inside to come out and then pronounce the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So, chosen by lot, this incense was burned twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. So there's two-week period, two dice thrown um, every year. Now, the rule was that you could only be chosen once to burn incense. Only once. Once you've done it, you're no longer part of the lot. Um, And then we also know that many priests never got chosen. There just weren't enough chances. So Zechariah, the lot falls on him. This is literally the chance of a lifetime. And his is coming in the later years of his life. Can you imagine the excitement of Zechariah? A priest getting to do the most priestly role he can do as a priest. What not every priest gets a chance to do. And he's been chosen by Lot. We'll find out very shortly that he was chosen by the Lord. One has to wonder if the dice was rolling and then it weirdly rolled this way and picked Zechariah. He comes in, man, he's stoked. He's probably reciting the prayers he's supposed to say. He's probably very nervous. He's holding the incense, um, and he's going to go put that on the altar. And as he comes into the temple, it's dim. It's only lit by the candles, the seven-candle lampstand. So uh, from, from the bright temple area now going inside, and his eyes are adjusting, he's coming up to the altar of incense, and <gasps> there right before him is an angel. And Zechariah is terrified. And the angel has to tell him in verse 13, do not be afraid. See, priests didn't see angels. They didn't get the words from God. Prophets got that communication. Priests were bringing the people's worship to God. For Zechariah to see an angel, this, this might have been a bad omen. He's terrified. I mean, I, you know... We've been doing this for 400 years, Lord, and there's never been an angel interrupting the worship flow. What is happening? Heaven is ripping into earth. Heaven saying, here we are, no longer hidden, right here. And Zechariah sees it and thinks, oh, one cannot imagine what's going through his mind. Maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I, uh, I, uh, I'm in trouble. I'm going to ruin it. Maybe he drops the incense. Maybe everything goes wrong. Zechariah is terrified. Heaven's word to earth is, do not be afraid. For, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Wait, you mean the prayer I've been praying for decades? It's been heard? And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. That prayer? That one? It's been heard. 
and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. That's the Nazarite vow. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 6. It was a vow people would take on occasion when you just kind of wanted to rededicate some parts of your life to listening to the Lord. Uh, but, but John, this baby, is going to be for life a Nazarite, fully dedicated. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, now this is coming straight from Malachi. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is Elijah. This is the prophet, the messenger, preparing the coming of God. Your son, Zechariah, your son. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready, to prepare, in other words, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I don't know if Zechariah is blown away that there's an angel in the middle of his once-in-a-lifetime chance. The climax of his life just hit another climax. The ratings are through the roof in his mind. And he's thinking, I don't even know how to contain all this. Or I don't know if he's just shocked that, wait, we're old. We're going to have a kid? Or if he's shocked by, wait, 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 wait. I'm talking to an angel. I'm old. I'm going to have a kid. And he's going to be, what Jesus will later say, the greatest of people born of women. What is going through Zachariah's mind? 400 years of silence, his life, barrenness, and now this. And so Zechariah answers in 18, uh, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Well played, Zechariah. And the angel answered him, <laughs> I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In other words, how am I supposed to know how this is supposed to work? I'm the messenger. God said it. Don't doubt it. And behold, verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Ouch. Well, the people were waiting outside, still praying. They're looking at each other. This is longer than normal, isn't it? They're waiting for Zechariah to come out and pronounce the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. And then finally, the doors open. Zechariah comes out, and he's gesturing and he's trying to bless them. And everyone's like, he's not saying anything. And that's when it hits everyone. Zechariah had a vision. And now the tremor is moving through Israel. Wait. Heaven's no longer silent. God has spoken. God has visited his people. And so... Zechariah fulfills his two-week duty. He goes home. And verse 24, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among women. And then, you jump up to verse 57. The baby's born. The baby's born. The neighbors come over to do the eighth day circumcision of the child. It was a communal affair. The entire village was likely around, the men especially, the prominent men there to do the deed. Witness around the whole community. This child will be a circumcised member of the Jewish family. And so they start calling the baby Zachariah. 
gods. Naturally, that's, that's what you did. You named children after either the father or after great-grandfathers as a sign of respect, that we want to keep the name living through our lineage. But, but Elizabeth says, no, no, don't call him Zachariah. We've already named him. He's John. <laughs> you don't make the decisions, Elizabeth. That's, you lost it. It must have been hard carrying full term in your age. Let's ask John. John, what's his name? And John's signing. However you sign a name, it doesn't work because they don't get it. They're like, so John says, fine. And he writes it down. His name will be John. And the minute Zechariah writes those words, his speech returns to him. And everyone marvels. And word of this goes through all the hill country. And then uh, Zechariah bursts in verse 67. He bursts into a psalmic song. It's clear that in Zechariah's life, the psalms were part and parcel of who he is. He just bursts into a psalm. First words, he speaks. Last word was, uh, you can't do this. First words are praise. Once he gets his words back, his first words are praise. It's a beautiful story. It's also troubling. Are we supposed to prepare with Zechariah and Elizabeth? When Zechariah didn't seem very prepared? Like, what kind of, a, what kind of a example is Zechariah for us? When finally the angel comes to Zechariah, you've been praying for a long time, I'm answering your prayer right now. And he says, uh, you, that's impossible. What is going on here? And how do we prepare with them? Well, we prepare with them by faithful devotion. Because here's what happens. With long delay, whether it's 400 years, 40 years, 4 years, long delay breaks down our belief. But faithful devotion holds up our belief. It's as if the pressure of waiting and the pressures of doubting and the pressures of delay and the pressures of barrenness and we've been praying and it's bouncing off the ceiling. The pressures pressing down on our beliefs are upheld by our faithful devotion to the one we believe in yet are desperately crying, help my belief, all at the same time. Faithful devotion. Faithful devotion. We have actually a lot to learn here from from Zechariah. Because here he is, in this long delay, wearing down his belief. So yes, he answers in verse 18, uh, how, sh- how shall I know this? I am, I'm an old man. This can't happen. Because his belief has been breaking down. And yet, and yet, he's instantly muted, and he decides right then and there, no, I believe. I believe. He does the deed with Elizabeth. That took some faith. It says she conceived. This was not through the Holy Spirit. This was not like Mary. This was a natural husband and wife conception. Zechariah believes. And then he proves his belief by saying his name will be John. Because the angel said it. The angel, or God did it. I will affirm it. So what we have here is Zachariah's belief was tired. It was tired. So many years of disappointment, so many years of wondering, so many years of waiting, so many years of looking back and thinking, well, I'm never going to get to go into the temple and have the highlight of my priestly career. We're never going to have a family to pass anything on to. My best days are behind me. Belief that is there, but barely. It's a smoldering wick. It's as if for so many years it was burning hot, and now there's just not much left. I've got no more runway, and the plane won't come up. So Zechariah's belief is tired, but it is not dead. It is not dead. He goes in, and he sees the angel, and he hears what the angel has to say. He meets with his wife. He calls the baby John. His belief is tired, but it is not dead. Delay wears us down, but devotion will hold us up. 
So how is it that Zechariah hasn't completely lost his ability to believe? Faithful devotion. He keeps faithful devotion. I want to show you guys how he does this in three ways. He keeps faithful devotion. We see verse in, first in verse 6. They were both righteous before God. So Elizabeth and Zechariah. Both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What a fantastic summary of these two. Blameless, righteous, uh, all in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Barren? Yep, we're barren, but we're blameless. Here's, okay, this... We, we have to understand what the Jews believed and what they were told by God to understand how incredible this is. This faithful devotion to do what God has told them to do in their lives day in and day out. You'll notice the phrase that they uh, were blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. The commandments and statutes. Well, in Deuteronomy 28, this is a famous chapter in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 28 is where Moses is kind of, he's bringing all of his sermons to a close and he's telling the people, look, here's the final word on the matter of all of God's law. If you obey his law, his commandments and statutes, that's the phrase Moses uses. If you keep them, he will bless you. If you don't keep them, curses are coming. Now, in Deuteronomy 28, it's this specific. 28 verse 4 Blessed, if you keep my commandments, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. Keep my commandments, blessed will be the fruit of your womb. Zechariah and Elizabeth are wondering what's going on here. This isn't computing. We are blameless and righteous in the laws and statutes and commandments of our Lord. And yet, our womb is unfruitful. Furthermore, when Deuteronomy 28 talks about the curses, in verse 18, it says this. When you disobey, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. Okay. Remember, Zechariah is a priest. He knows how to read the Bible. Zechariah is very aware that our lack of fruit in the womb seems to be stemming from a lack of obedience to God. And yet, we're told that they're not disobedient. They're righteous and blameless. Now, footnote, this does not mean they're perfect. They sin. But righteous and blameless in the Bible means you know you sin and you confess your sin. The evil ones sin and don't ever confess sin. That's, they live in darkness. They're realizing here that they're getting the short end of the deal. God said we would be fruitful if we are faithful. We've been faithful, but we're not fruitful. So, if I'm Zechariah and Elizabeth, one has to wonder at what point, I've given my life to this, I've been a priest, and we've been righteous and blameless, and yet you have treated us like we're cursed. What is with this God? You know, we're old, Elizabeth. Let's just go and bring all of our savings and live over there, away from all these people, away from this religious stuff, away from this God who doesn't keep promises. That's how most people think. Oh, I've done everything for God, and he's done nothing for me. And yet, despite the fact that they're getting nothing out of their obedience, they remain blameless, even though barren. Friends, this is what faithful devotion looks like. Faithful devotion. It doesn't say, I'm devoted to you, Lord, when you meet your end of the bargain. By the way, God never made a bargain with you like that. That's in the first place. Let's make that clear. Only when you bless me will I obey you. Faithful devotion is, I love the commands of God. I find flourishing in my life when I am walking in his way. I find the peace and the greatness and the beauty of the Lord dwelling in my life when I am walking his way. I find myself seeing him and closer to him when I am walking his way. 
And though he curse me, Job says, yet will I praise him. Because God is our reward. This is what Zechariah and Elizabeth have learned after years of prolonged delay and disappointment and barrenness and fruitlessness is that in the end, we're faithful to him. We're blameless and righteous in him because he is worth it. That's what faithful devotion looks like. And we can so often belittle the little things we do, the little ways we, we make the hard decision to follow God. We try to keep integrity. We try to grow the virtues of God in our lives. And sometimes it takes, it should often take a lot of sacrifice. It takes no sacrifice to live like culture. None at all. But to walk in the ways of God it takes something. And how many times are we tempted to say, oh, but yes, the public things. I want everybody to see that I'm blameless publicly, but in my private life, I'll shortcut, I'll cheat, I'll rip people off. As long as no one knows about it, I'm a pretty upright dude. Not for Elizabeth and Zechariah. God says they're righteous and blameless. The lot didn't pick Zechariah that day. The Lord saw their willingness to walk in his way, even when he had not given them a child yet, was God's way of saying, Aha, Gabriel, I found the parents of the messenger at long last, 400 years. We found them. They are the ones who are truly righteous and blameless. Because they're not just putting coins in the machine saying, God bless us, God bless us. We'll keep doing what you want us to do because you're so good to us. They're doing it despite my not giving them the blessing. And so God notices the little things, faithful devotion to him. This is what holds up our belief. It, 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 through keeping his commands, we're living up to God's statutes. So while delay is pressing down, obeying God and even the little things and all things of life is lifting us up. That's how Zechariah's belief hasn't cracked under 400 years of delay and a long life of disappointment. Second, so we see that they live up through obedience, but they also show up. Zechariah is someone who demonstrates his faithful devotion by showing up year after year after year after year, even though nothing comes out of it. So in verse 8, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood. So there you go. I mean, we saw that in verse 8, how he, every year, when his, when his two weeks comes along, rather than saying, this is my two-week notice, he comes and faithfully shows up for two weeks, year after year after year, to the God who won't give me a child despite our blamelessness. He keeps showing up. Commitment, commitment. Faithful devotion looks like commitment. Yes, it's obedience, but it's also commitment. Through obedience, we live up against the crushing delay and through showing up, through commitment, we keep up the crushing delay. Because what if, what if Elijah just said this year, man, my back. Or that thing that happens when I get older is happening again, Elizabeth. I think I'm going to take this year off. And what if Elizabeth said, oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. How dare you look in front of a mirror we don't have mirrors, but how dare you stand in front of others and say, I'm a priest of God while you're not going to do your two-week duty. Zechariah, get there. Like Next year, I'll quit. And what if he didn't show up? Gabriel would never have shown up either. And maybe, maybe Luke is going to be in the future still. So he lives up to God's commands. He shows up in commitment. Third way he expresses his faithful devotion is uh, prayer. He lifts up. So the long delay is pressing down, but prayer is lifting up. Persistent, faithful prayers. That's his devotion. 
as, as, as Gabriel said, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Perhaps God hears when we pray once. I mean, of course he hears. But does that move God to act? Sometimes we pray once and God does it. And we're like, wow, that was easy. It's working well. Sometimes we pray for years and years and years and he doesn't do anything. And then he does it. We don't know. Because God has time. He has timing with things. And we are simply called to pray until he chooses to fulfill it. To lift up our souls to him. That's what waiting is about. It's about lifting up our our waiting, our longing, our saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Or come and work in our midst. We will keep praying until you do it. And that's what Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Luke. He teaches the parable of the persistent widow. There was a judge who did not care about justice, but the widow kept on pleading, help me, help me, I have a bad guy who's, who's taking advantage of me, help me. And the judge, I don't care about you, get out of my life. But she kept on pressing day after day until the judge decided, not because he's nice, but because I am tired of her. I will do what she wants. Jesus said, so shall you pray before God. Not that God is the one who says, well, only because you annoy me will I do what you want. (laughs) Jesus' point was, if humans can break down in the same way, how much more would your father who wants to give good things to his children answer when we keep praying in persistence? Your prayer at long last has been heard. Man, there is such a powerful picture here because here, Zechariah is coming to the temple where the altar of incense is and he's going to lay incense on there giving up the prayers to god here's a man who's been praying for a child for years here's a man who's showing up to the temple every year faithfully for years here's a man who never got to go into the incense himself but now does and he is there and his prayers answered in revelation we have a picture of what is happening in heaven. And this is Revelation 5, verse 8. We see that there are elders who worship around God's throne day and night. And there's this little comment. It says that they have golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. These elders, 24, surrounding the throne of God, hold golden bowls full of incense the prayers of the saints. It's Revelation 5.8. What do they do with those bowls? Say, <laughs> all these humans that are just waiting and waiting. No? In Revelation 8, verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar, just like Zechariah, with a golden censer, just like Zechariah, And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, just like Zechariah. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes, of lightning and an earthquake. The point of revelation there is not that the angel takes a censer and chucks it. Um, The point of looking at that is that in heaven, our prayers are collected as incense before God. And so here, the Jews, day after day after day, offering these prayers, come, come, Savior, come deliver us, Zachariah and Elizabeth for their baby. Come, come, come and give us fruit. And now Zechariah bringing all of it together. Israel's longing and he and his wife's longing come together. The incense is there. And it's as if this was the prayer that finally tipped the bowls over. And God says, yes, now's the time. Now's the time. And in Revelation, the angel answers the prayers of the saints. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He says, now's the time. Bring the kingdom to earth. Long story that Revelation is. But that's part of it. So here, he has faithful devotion in that he has prayed over and over and over. Okay. 
So how do we keep this faithful devotion? We see that Elizabeth and Zechariah's faithful devotion have carried them just enough so that when God visits and says, I'm about to do it in your lives, they have just enough going for them. It's like, oh, we believe, but help our unbelief. That's basically Zechariah's like, okay, but uh, how are you? God's like, silence. So how do we prepare with them? How do we gain this faithful devotion? How do we keep faithful devotion when it seems like there's no point whatsoever? Nothing's coming out of this. God's never going to deliver. He's never going to move. How do we keep faithful devotion? What would Elizabeth and Zechariah teach us tonight? How would they tell us to prepare for what God is going to do? I believe that they would say, first, hold tradition. First, hold tradition, but know when to break it. We live in an age where no one holds, no one wants to hold tradition. Every single traditional belief, traditional institution is questioned or is encouraged to challenge it or to go against it. And we live in a culture where we applaud people as heroes, like Greek heroes of old, as heroes for going against tradition. That today is a virtue. Break tradition. We applaud that. Not in the Bible. Zechariah and Elizabeth are people who hold tradition. They're people who keep with their faithful devotion. They're people who keep on praying, but prayer doesn't work. You know there's newer methods to make yourself feel better and get around this whole disappointment thing. No, God told us to pray. You know God's commands aren't working out for your life. We're in a pragmatic society. We're obsessed with doing what works. Zechariah and Elizabeth here, life coach talking to them, I've noticed that it's not very practical for you to keep these commandments. Maybe you should uh, try alternate methods to make yourselves happy. No. They're holding fast to what God had given them. They live in a world where they have received truth from God. They live in a world where they realize it's our job to figure out how to form our lives in this world. But today we live in a world where people say, no, it's our job to figure out how to make this world fit into our lives. We're going to manipulate everything. We're going to conquer everything. We're just going to fit it all around us. Not so with people who hold tradition. Now we believe that the world has a course, that it was set on that course by a creator, and that the creator has a plan, and that everything's going toward a climax, and we want to move with that they would say, hold, hold to that, hold to tradition. When everybody else says, <laughs> yeah, we're so past that. We're so enlightened now. So we see in verse 59, chapter 1, I told you the story. We didn't quite get in the text because I knew we were going to look at this now. In verse 59, we see, on the eighth day, the village came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. That's tradition. The circumcision is tradition. Do we really need that anymore? I mean, no, that's what, in that time, Zechariah and Elizabeth were holding to the traditional teachings that they were given. Um, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John, verse 61. And they said to her, But... That's breaking tradition. <laughs> None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted the child to be called. And that's when he wrote down his name is to be John. So if we want to be, if we want to keep faithful devotion, we must hold to the tradition that has been handed down to us from God, from the Bible, from our church fathers. We're not trying to innovate Christianity. We're not trying to be cute, clever, creative. We're simply trying to walk faithfully to what's been handed down to us. But every now and then, there's a time to break tradition. Elizabeth and Zechariah recognize that this is one of those moments. We're not going to call John Zechariah or Malachi or whatever the other names in their family were. We're going to break tradition. And that's where everyone's astonished and alarmed. How, you can't do that. You, you can't break tradition. Well, 
We, you see story after story of the great Christian heroes who are told they can't do what they're doing, but they believe that God was working in a unique way. And they were willing. Only when the evidence of heaven was pointing that way are they willing to break tradition. You guys have heard the stories all the time. I know Pastor Mike shared a lot of them. I heard them tons when I was down at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. How Pastor Chuck broke all the traditions. He allowed drums and guitars on the stage. He allowed people to come into church without shoes on, with long hair. It was a scandal back then. So whole tradition, but know when to break it. There are times. For example, the early church. You see this in Acts the early church was trying to circumcise all the new believers. What did their tradition handed down to them say? Abraham was told, everyone is to be circumcised. So they by nature are saying, I know, Ron, I know you're a Gentile, but you got to do it. You want to be a Christian, we got to do it. But that's when the early church began to have discussion. Yes, that's a tradition given to us by God, but it seems like God is giving his Holy Spirit to people who aren't circumcised. See, when heaven points another way, that's the time to break tradition. And they, through a lot of struggle, because they don't want to let go, they don't want to be unmoored from the anchor that God's given them, say, oh, cool, so postmodernism, we're just going to kind of figure it all out as we go. No. It's all figured out through tradition. We only need to answer occasionally how we're going to figure things out as we go. So the early church is an example. Here's how you know it's time to break a tradition, perhaps. Do you hold the tradition, or does the tradition hold you? If God won't bless you unless you do it this way, the tradition has you. But if you see the tradition as something, as, as a vehicle to understanding the ancient God who hasn't changed, whose path hasn't needed to change for 2,000 years plus, if you see that as a pathway, then good. Tradition serving its rightful purpose. So they would tell us, look, keep faithful devotion by holding tradition. Don't question your tradition unless it is necessary. All right. I mean, you could go on and on on this one, right? Sexual ethics and everything being questioned today. Uh, Second, they would tell us, keep faithful devotion by silencing your self-expression. Silence your self-expression. I wish we had that option. We have iPhones that can be silenced. That's an option. People forget all the time. But I wish I could just silence people's self-expression. They're, I want to vent my opinion to the world as if it matters. I want to tell everyone about my new amazing diet. I want to tell everyone about what I do with my free time while everyone else is watching Netflix. I want to, and all of these self-expressing Silence your self-expression and heed divine instruction. That's what Zechariah and Elizabeth would tell us. Why? Because Zechariah tried self-expression. God said, hey, it's good news. The the messenger to come, whoops, the messenger to come is here. And, and, And Zechariah said, oh, but hold on. I need to express myself for a minute. I'm old. And the angel said, I've heard this for many years. Abraham said the same thing. Mute. And Zechariah had nine months to reorient his life, not around expressing myself, not self-expression, but divine instruction. Brothers and sisters, today, culture applauds the person who expresses themselves most openly. If I, if my gender is to be if I self-identify as, what, what is it, Brittany? Someone in our, our, our young adult small group says, if I self-identify as a potato, there's more societal backing for that self-expression than there is for the Christian who says, but divine instruction says, man and woman. Idiot! Old-fashioned! Self-expression is the, is the norm here. It's, and it's the norm, it's creeping into church. It is the norm for a Christian to want to express themselves at church. Whatever happened to us gathering before God and saying, your instruction for our lives? 
We must be careful that worship doesn't become a way for us to express ourselves. Absolutely, the Psalms are full of emotional results of worship, and those are good. But the point of worship is not, I love you. I want to be like you. I want to obey you. That's not the point of worship. It's not self-expression. The point of worship is gathering around the throne to receive, to heed, to listen to divine instruction. We come in worship to say, because you're mighty, we need your kingship in our lives. We need your rule. We realize what's happening to a society of self-expression, and it's a lot of, it's confusing. We need, we need your direction, your instruction. That's what Zechariah and Elizabeth would tell us. So Zechariah protests. We see his self-expression. But in the end, verse 62, um, when they say, oh, but aren't you going to name him Zechariah? And he says, no. Verse 63, he says, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Done. Nine months of mute. Nine months of silence. I'm not going to express what I think my son should be called. That's, that's, by the way, not saying that this is bad, but we often like to name things or create things as a form of self-expression. Of course we're supposed to name things and create things. But what John is doing here is instead of saying, well, our hopes for this child is that he would be a mighty fortress, so we're going to name him. John is saying, I might have that wish, but God gave me divine instruction to name him John. I'm heeding divine instruction. Um... And so then he, the first words he speaks when he gets his speech back is not self-expression. Woo! It was so hard to be quiet for nine months. By the way, let me tell you all, read my blog. I shared about my reflections and experiences of taking a vow of silence for nine months. First of all, self-expression often recasts things to make it look like it was your idea. Often the case if you're on social media. 90% of the time it's a total lie. You did not take a vow of silence, Zachariah. Come on. You were forced. You were muted. Anyways, so if you will just see my wonderful reflections of what a great, it's just a, it's just a reviving experience. That's missing the point. That is missing the point. Zechariah, instead, when he gets his voice back, it says in verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and if you have a chain reference Bible, or you can look this up on your own, you'll just notice how many Old Testament passages are coming out of Zechariah's mouth spontaneously right then and there. This is a man who heeded divine instruction, who heeded the words of God, not the words of Zechariah's little ego wanting attention. And finally, Zechariah and Elizabeth would tell us to keep faithful devotion. Yes, holding tradition, but knowing when to break it. Silencing self-expression and heeding divine instruction. But third, uh, to live, they tell us to live in continuity with God's story. Live in continuity with God's story. Uh, you'll notice, like we, like we said when we started this um, message, that Luke opens like an Old Testament story. And it is not an accident. All the scholars, I, uh, commentaries I read all said the same thing. Luke is intentionally writing like it's the Old Testament because what Luke is doing is he's showing that the Old Testament, what God used to do, isn't what he He's doing it now in a new way. It's the same story. And what a lot of modern Christians like to do today is they like to divorce Jesus from the God story of the Bible and just kind of exalt Jesus as a prophet or a teacher. And we really like his instructions. If we would, as a society, take his instructions, we would finally see utopia on earth. A lot of people love Jesus. A lot of people love Jesus. I don't know many people that think Jesus was mean or bad or ba bad role model. Everyone venerates Jesus when you take him out of the Bible. When you treat Jesus like his own isolated thing. Luke is not going to have any of that. Luke is saying, no, Jesus is the climax of an ongoing story. Things were in motion, and, and Christ is bringing all of God's plans into one singular point in history. 
the, the separation of heaven from earth after the sin of Adam and Eve. It's been a very long time trying to bring these together. And in Abraham and Israel, there was moments when heaven and earth are touching just a little bit, mostly in the temple, but just a little bit. It's King David, just a little bit. But finally, in Christ, all God and all humanity, two natures dwelling as one person, it's all united. It's all coming together. This is the climax. This is what humanity has been yearning for. This is what God had been telling through the prophets will come to pass one day. It is all here in Christ. And none of that makes any sense if we eliminate sin, if we eliminate human pride from the story. Christ is coming as the climax of a story. And Elizabeth and Zechariah would say, yes, Because Zechariah was going on with temple duties, just like the Old Testament. Elizabeth was praying for a baby, just like in the Old Testament. See, God has what, I'm going to be a little technical for a very little second here. God has what's called a prospective eschatology. Prospective means you're looking forward. Eschatology, end times, just think where everything's going to end up. He's looking forward to where everything's going to end up. Christ, and now what he's doing in and through Christ and his people to the new heaven and new earth. That's a prospective eschatology. You're looking forward. Most of humanity, most of humanity has a retrospective eschatology. In other words, um, my best days are behind me. We're always looking back. Like remember the good old days. 2020 was the worst year ever. The world's never going to recover. America was never better than it was when so-and-so was in office. Or the church is in decline, and it was never better than when... Remember the days of this evangelist or that movement or the Great Awakening or, or where are the Puritans these days? Or, friends... We do not need a retrospective eschatology. Part of living our lives in continuity with God's story is understanding that we live in motion on God's plot line. His story we're moving through. We're in the climax. And the resolution is even better. We know where it's going. We want to live in continuity with that. What if Zechariah had said... Babe, I think our best days are behind us. Let's just play bunko with our neighbors. Let's join a wine club. Let's go cruise the Mediterranean. Somewhere in Zechariah's heart was a prospective view of life. He somehow kept showing up, kept lifting up, kept living up that faithful devotion because he knew the best days are ahead. I don't know if I'm going to see it, but I believe that's true. Brothers, sisters, if you believe your best days are behind you, you will never believe God can do this. You will never believe. The only way to receive God's power in our lives is to believe that there is still more to come. We are moving with the story forward. We are moving. We are partners. We are cooperating with Christ in moving the story forward. We get to ride this wave. We get to look at the best days yet to come. I don't know where you're at tonight. I I feel like my... I, I have succumbed to this so many times. Man, my 20s... I'm getting grayer. I get a few more aches and cramps. I've seen Dr. Bueller a couple times more than I've ever had in my life. There's just... Mm. It's not just that, though. The opportunities of life or um, the friends that you once had when you were cool or the way students used to look at me as a teacher. Now I'm just the old guy. Um, whatever it is, we can so easily succumb into this, yeah, we'll just write out the rest of our lives because it's behind us now. It's not. It's not. 
Empires rise and fall. America may very well have seen its last days, like its glory days behind it. That could be true. I'm not prophesying anything, but history shows us that empires rise and fall. They do. Let's not have a prospective view for America as if that was the gospel. Our prospective view is what Christ's kingdom is going to do, and I want to be in there. Because if I'm focusing on the ways of this world, yep, I am going to continually be looking back at what I missed or what I wish I still had. I want to keep looking forward and saying, this is what God's going to do, and I want to be arms wide open for what he's going to do. I want to live in this story, not Brandon's story. And I don't want to decide where the story's going. My endings are lame. My endings are limited. God's ending is perfect. That's the story we need to live in. So, brothers and sisters, part of faithful devotion is understanding that, yes, in God's story, there are long periods of silence or long trials and lots and lots of patience necessary. God rarely seems to just say, everything's coming down the pipe at once. It's more like all these little tenting, tantalizing little previews of things like, ah, give me more of that. Why didn't he just give the baby to Zechariah? Here you go. God gives us seasons of growth, of preparation. Keep looking forward. Let's live in his story. Um, so get to know the characters in here. Get to see their patience. Emulate it. And we too will have hearts that are prepared to receive what God wants to do in and through us. Let us pray. Oh Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to receive your life.